Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm the host of the channel, Amir Sayyadabdi. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Monata Hashemi about her new book, Coming of Age in Iran, Poverty and the Struggle for Dignity, which has been published in 2020 by New York University Press. Monata is a sociologist, ethnographer, and the Farzana Family Associate Professor of Iranian Studies in the Department of International and Area Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Apart from her new book that we're going to talk about today, she's also the co-editor of Children in Crisis, Ethnographic Studies in International Contexts, which was published in 2013 by Routledge. Monata, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Amir. It's a pleasure. Uh, to start off, could you please tell us a bit about your background, please? Sure. Um, so I was born in Iran, um, raised in Ohio. And as you mentioned, I'm a sociologist and urban ethnographer by training. Um, I received my PhD from UC Berkeley, where my focus was on the sociology of poverty and inequality, mostly in the context of the Middle East. I also did work on uh, poverty and development during my master's in Middle Eastern studies at Harvard University. Um, But I guess my interest in Iran and the sociology of Iran um, and more broadly, the Middle East really sparked during my undergraduate years at Cornell. Um, Today, I'm an associate professor of Iranian studies at OU in Norman, Oklahoma. And before I came to Norman, I actually lived for a few years in Doha, where I was a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University in Qatar and um, a research director at Qatar Foundation. Uh, Thanks, Monata. Um, So there's often a story behind every book, right? What's the story behind yours? I mean, how did this book come about? Yeah, um, so my journey down this path, so to speak, really started after college um, when I did an internship for an NGO in Iran that focused on poverty alleviation and development. Um, During my time there, and this was um, in the mid-2000s, I was tasked with writing various reports and analyses And I noticed that there wasn't too much scholarship on contemporary poverty and the lives of the urban poor that I could draw from. Um, And that really sparked my curiosity and it led me to want to pursue the sociological study of urban poverty in Iran um, for my graduate work, for my doctoral work. I wanted to know how people cope with conditions of economic hardship, right? There's, in, in sociology at least, you know, there's this huge body of knowledge when it comes to ethnographic studies of urban poverty in America, Um, but we really know a lot less about how people manage these circumstances beyond the global north and especially um, in countries of the Middle East. But, you know, I guess in more recent years, understanding this has become really important. 
economic hardship has really become sort of the new status quo in the region, and especially in Iran. We see growing formal unemployment, we see escalating inequality, and now with the pandemic and all its blowbacks, all of this has really sort of become the norm for a lot of people um, in Iran. And I, I would say even youth in Iran, they're not just facing a, a really bleak job market like young people are in the US, but in Iran, they're also dealing with the added pressure of daily inflation and sanctions um, that have made access to goods and services difficult. Um, and all of this is infinitely harder for youth who are located at the bottom of the social ladder, right? Who are the most vulnerable in normal times. And so given this prolonged situation of crisis, um, the central question in my book, or I, I wanted to answer in my, in my doctoral work and later on in my book was, you know, how are these youth, how are low-income youth struggling, not just to cope or manage their lives, right, but really to find meaning within them? What does it mean to be young and poor in the Islamic Republic today? Um, I guess another part of this that sort of led me down this path was that a lot of the evidence that we have on how people in Iran, and especially young people in Iran, cope with hardship is still largely anecdotal. Um, it's still largely being informed by inconsistent media coverage of Iran that tends to mostly focus on this narrative of despair um, that can then be presumably channeled into rebellion of some sort. Um, and because of this, a lot of media coverage and analyses tends to focus on these spectacular moments of political engagement, right? Rebellions, strikes, protests, or they look at the various ways people, and especially disenfranchised youth, are trying to resist in some way. And, you know, rebelling and protesting, you know, that's that's great and certainly one avenue by which people respond to hardship. But these sorts of engagements are not really sustainable over the long term. They're not something that most people, most young people in Iran do every day due to the costs and consequences. Um, so what do they do? And this is where my work falls in. I, I focus on showing what the more mundane stuff of daily life, what the ordinary can reveal about um, people's emancipatory projects. What can their everyday coping strategies tell us more generally about how people living in conditions of economic insecurity um, what can this tell us about how they foster the good life for themselves? Mm. And for me, having you know trained as an ethnographer um, during my doctoral um, during my grad school years, you know this question of how really lends itself to qualitative analysis, right? To um, ethnography and interviews to really understand how people make a life for themselves. Um, surveys are great in getting the overall big picture view of how much poverty there is or what people think about certain issues. But, you know, from a biased standpoint, I think ethnography is really the way to go to understand why and how people think and act the way they do. Um, it takes a lot longer. In this case, the field work was conducted over a decade. Um, but for me, it's really been worth it to get at that slice of life that we often, that's often lacking in a lot of media coverage of the country. Mm, true. And, and you do all this around a particular theme, right, Manata? A, a particular cultural practice that um, what, what you call face system. Uh, and, and this face system has various components like a saving face, like face work, like face saving, like face savers. Uh, could you tell us about this face system uh, in the Iranian social and cultural context? I mean, what does it mean? Why does it matter? 
Yeah. So I, um, as you mentioned, I use the concept of face and saving face throughout the book. It's really at the crux of the book's argument. And this goes back to what I mentioned earlier about um, people's coping strategies, young people's coping strategies. Um, what I found was that there are youth who display this overwhelming conformity to the social um, and moral order. They're not interested in rebelling and resisting, but rather engaging in this um, accentuated conformism to the rules of the game by saving face. So in Persian, um, this concept of saving face is referred to as alberu, right? Which literally means water of the face, ab water, ru face. And in its most literal sense, alberu refers to this sort of veil of water that covers your face and shields you um, from the gaze of outsiders. The idea is that it's only through this metaphorical veil of water that you can protect the most vulnerable part of your body, your face, from the judgment of others. But once you lose this veil of water, right, that's it. You expose yourself to potential shame. It's a sort of social death. And that's the highest form of poverty, right? To lose your figurative face means to lose your dignity. Um, a person who's bi without face is pretty much no longer valued in, in their community. So preserving this veil of water or saving face, in other words, um, became really important or was really important, I found, for the youth I came to know. And I call these youth face savers in the book to really distinguish them from other people for whom saving face might not have had such a defining role in their lives. Mm. Um, and to maintain this albedo, to maintain or save face, you have to follow a certain moral code. You have to follow a certain set of rules or values. Um, you have to engage in face work, in other words. Um, I should add here, though, that this concern for saving face isn't unique to Iran. Um, it's universal. We all do it. Uh, the sociologist Irving Goffman, you know, he saw face as the sort of approved social image that people present to others. So we all constantly edit our public image to avoid shaming ourselves. We all try to follow certain rules in the various circumstances we find ourselves in. Um, but the rules that govern face work, they're different. And they're different both within a culture and across cultures. They're informed by history, um, by society, by the state, by one's community. There are differences um, in face-saving practices among rich and poor, young and old, even among men and women. Um, what comprises the rules in the lower income areas in Saudi and Tehran, where I did my field work, for instance, may look completely different in another city. And we have to be attuned to that as well. See, um, now the question um, that, that comes to mind is that if someone can save face through, you know, these strategies that you mentioned, uh, can one also lose face? Yeah, of course, um, you can. The phrase alberurizi or losing face, it captures that process when, you know, you're not able for whatever reason to edit your public image. But what's interesting, what I found was that, you know, losing face isn't 
sort of the end all be all. For example, if you're caught violating one of the rules, you can always recapture the community's approval by adhering even more vigilantly to the rules of the game next time. You're not necessarily labeled as being with face or without face. Most of the time, it's not this either or scenario. Um, so, you know, if you violate the rules, often the amount of your face, the amount of that veil of water will decrease rather than completely go away. Um, but having said that, there are instances when you can completely lose it. For instance, um, you know, if you're outed as being a sex worker, which is seen as being antithetical to being virtuous, you're not able to gain um, moral capital. You're not able to gain a good reputation, right? In fact, it results in negative moral capital. Your moral worth becomes destroyed in its entirety. And once it's destroyed, regardless of how much you need help, um, I found that you know people received social disdain from others rather than benevolence. There's an example of a young woman in the book um, who I saw was panhandling. And as I was talking to her, a guard came up to me and basically told me to not even communicate with her because she was a sex worker. She was um, ruined in other words. So mm. when a woman becomes known as this quote unquote ruined woman, um, she's not just faced with stigmatization, but also with contempt, which denies her access to resources, um, which denies her access to community goods. But who defines these rules, Manata? You 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 talk about uh, rules of the game, rules of the face game, a very you know Bordeauxian term that you also engage with in your book. Who decides what the rules of the game are? What the moral uh, codes uh, associated with them are? I mean, is it religion? Is it the state? Is it the community? Who says in the face game this is good and this is bad? This is right and this is wrong. This is pure and this is polluted. Right. No, that's a great question. Um, it's really a combination of all of the above, but it also depends on what rule we're talking about. Um, so for instance, this expectation that, you know, one of the rules is having a hard work ethic and being responsible, right. Or being self-sufficient. Um, and this expectation that a young man, for instance, should have a hard work ethic and be responsible really comes from this idea that equates laziness with masculine dishonor. Um, and this is something that comes from older Persian ideals. In the 19th and 20th centuries, Iranian nationalists drew from these ideals to stress the importance of zealousness, discipline, as the way that Iran could develop as a nation. Um, and Manakia actually shows this insightfully in her own work. But then today, what we also find is the similar emphasis on hard work, zeal in official speeches that equate these elements to national development and to the development of moral youth. And so this overarching historical emphasis um, on a strong work ethic as the key to cultivating both national development and individual morality has come to influence how my interlocutors um, and their communities viewed those who were unemployed or those who were, um, or, or those who seemed lazy. In fact, um, as one local woman told me, there's something wrong with a young man who doesn't work. You know, maybe he's on drugs or he's involved with the wrong people. Um, in a similar way, you know, I, I didn't really talk about the, the various, the specific rules, but, you know, another rule that 
people really tried to, or the young people really tried to adhere to was um, being seen as classy or with it. Um, and the significance that's attached to being classy or following the latest global fashion trends, it reflects this historical preoccupation with foreign trends dating back to the 19th century, um, to the Rajar era in Iran. Being modern at the time was equated with being Western in a lot of ways. We also see this later on during the Pahlavi era. Um, when the 1979 revolution happened, it was in part a reaction to this, right? Initially, anything that could be suggestive of an invasion by Western and especially North American secular culture was prohibited. To be Iranian was to be Islamic. But over time, especially um, beginning in the late 90s with the rise of the reform movement, we see the Islamic Republic visibly opening social space for young Iranians, especially to exercise a greater freedom of dress. Um, and today, we you know, we see billboards advertising the latest trending men's clothing shops. The models have trendy haircuts. Um, we see advertisements for global accessories, for brand name clothing and perfumes. There's this globalized commercial culture that has seeped into Iran and has really contributed to what it now means to be a citizen. In the state's eyes, both material advancement and morality now define modernity. And this message is now being heard loud and clear by the younger generations who are part of my study. Um, and finally, underlying all of this was, you know, the preoccupation that my interlocutors had with being seen as moral individuals, as, as virtuous, as pure. Um, and this rule of purity, as I talk about in the book, it's perhaps the most important. It applies to both men and women. Um, and it's the one that has the most severe consequences if it's not followed. You know, if you don't dress well or if you're out of work for a period of time, it's not that bad as long as you're seen as a virtuous person. Um, and you, you know, you mentioned pollution. Um, in your question, this idea of purity and pollution it has a long history in Iran um, that actually predates the Islamic regime. So in Shia Islamic jurisprudence, the idea is that there are certain impurities that can pollute you as a believer. Abu Samonat, you know, discusses this in his work. These impurities can range from things like drinking and gambling to even other people. So you have to be hyper vigilant against all of these various moral pollutions that can jeopardize your goodness. Um, so for some people, like those whom I got to know, this has meant that things like sexual impropriety, getting caught using drugs, hanging out with the wrong crowd, dressing indecently, these all not only lead you to lose face, but also to be evaluated as immoral and impure by those around them. Um, so for the youth I spent time with self-editing themselves so they could be judged by those around them as morally good, modern citizens help them to escape stigma. Um, as a final point, I wanted to add here that interestingly enough, I found that these the youth I knew saw this self-editing, this self-censorship as a good thing. Um, they told me they don't feel forced. They like living by the rules. They want to be remembered as good people. They're concerned about their aburu, um, and they feel that's the most important thing to hold on to. So even if they didn't always agree with the rules, they try to follow them as best they could so they could cement their position as good people in their communities. 
um, I want to follow up on something that you mentioned now and also earlier, that you said that people engage with Facebook differently in different regions, or uh, it is different uh, across different classes, or it's different across different genders. I mean, it, it's different uh, strategies for men and different strategies for women. And this gender aspect is really interesting to me. Could you talk a little about that, how it is different for men and uh, for women? Yeah, sure. Um... So in general, what I saw was that, you know, both young men and women made a bid to engage in face-saving strategies, um, many times subconsciously in an attempt to safeguard their dignity in the eyes of their friends, their neighbors, employers, extended family. Um, and while I saw both um, both men and women abide by these strategies, some of these rules, particularly um being seen as hardworking and self-sufficient were really more of an issue for the young men I knew because their perceived masculinity really hinged on their ability to provide. Um, the intense pressure I saw with regard to men working and being breadwinners in these communities meant that young women didn't face the same sort of social stigma for not being able to perform a strong work ethic. Whereas the masculine imperative to work and sort of show your diligence meant that the slightest indication of idleness among men was cause for them to lose face. So um, in the absence of being able to really distinguish themselves through their work ethic, a lot of the young women I knew became really reliant on the most immediate visible feature of themselves that they thought could denote their worth, which was their physical appearances. Um, so what I found was the image imperative, looking classy, looking on trend, was really much more of an imperative for young women. They invested much more of their time, energy, resources into having the right look than their male counterparts did. Um, so as a young woman, you could partly save face by having a smart appearance, right? But as a young man, if you were on trend but unemployed, people would gossip. You would become ill-reputed as doing nothing, as being lazy. And a phrase I, I heard among community members over and over again was right? empty pocket full pretense to um, refer to young men who put their appearances above their work ethic. Um, and um, th there is something that you talk about in, in, in the conclusion of the book that is really interesting, that uh, these, you know, practices, these uh, face system could uh, sound like a performance, but is it really, you know, a performance? Is it an, a conscious kind of performance, would you say? No, I mean, they are performing, in a way they're performing class, right? Um, but I would say that, these performances, I mean, it's so ingrained in these youth that a lot of times it's subconscious, right? They don't necessarily think about it. They just know that um, it's important to be perceived as good and to be remembered as good people. Um, and that's really what drives them to want to follow the rules in order to preserve their dignity um, and claim recognition in their communities. What does this face fork is eventually achieving for the poor, Monata? I mean, why do the poor go through all this? Why do they bother with saving face? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think a large part of it is, you know, it's a silent struggle that these youth are engaging in to claim their place and assert dignity, to claim recognition um, 
for my interlocutors, playing the game was about being seen as good people, right? But it was also about fulfilling their aspirations for a better life and gaining upward mobility. And this desire for a better life, um, these aspirations for middle-class lifestyles and norms that I found among these youth, um, you know, I would say it's a result of Iran's own developmental turn over the past 30 years. The expansion of educational, leisure, cultural opportunities to the lower classes, um, these have all worked to lead to um, the bourgeoisiement, in a way, of Iranian society beyond the middle and upper classes. The youth in my study, they were now, they were at the time, at the time, they were in close contact with the upper classes in ways that their counterparts weren't in the past. Um, they now have access to activities that were once just the domain of the rich. So they've seen and felt the opportunities that are available to them and they want a piece of that, right? They're no longer content with just having a working class lifestyle. Um, and for these youth um, following the rules has the potential to create this upward mobility for them, to create what I term incremental mobility within conditions of hardship. Um, by playing the game, youth are able to gain a good reputation, to gain moral capital, which they can then symbolically trade in for these small incremental um, material, social, and economic gains that are valuable to them. There's this example in the book of Nina, who is a young freelance artist I became friends with, um, she was always impeccably turned out. She's very articulate. You know, and she told me growing up, she would work as a dishwasher secretly to be able to afford the clothes and the accessories that were considered cool by her classmates. Um, and in the time I knew her, she would, you know, frequent bookshops, events, gyms, classes, and upper um, parts, upper class areas of town. And over the years, because of her intense commitment to sort of performing this middle class lifestyle, I saw how she became embedded within middle class society, right? She formed friendships with local artists and intellectuals who helped her. Um, showcase her work. And eventually she met and married a young businessman through these friends. Um, and the last time I saw her, she was attending a university. Nina's rise is a bit more drastic than the other cases I knew, but her story represents a pattern that I saw over and over again, which was that in a game where you win by gaining social mobility, performance matters. How well a person adheres to what others see as admirable becomes the measuring stick by which she's deemed as deserving. Um, if youth were seen as deserving, they could then capitalize on their reputations to form connections with others, which in turn would oftentimes land them a small promotion at work or a bonus or information about jobs. So moral judgments of this sort determined who could get ahead and of course who could um, who would fall behind. And, you know, I, in part, I would say this, a, a lot of this boils down to fitting in. Um, the young people I spent time with, they were challenging their poverty and the stigma associated with their poverty um, through the clothes they wore, through the measured ways they acted. But in claiming their right to belong, they also singled themselves out. They were implying that among all those who were competing for a better life, they were the respectable ones, right? They were the ones deserving of approval. And so what this means is that, you know, at the end of the day, some youth end up losing out. There are youth who can't play by the rules all the time. Um, maybe they can't afford to purchase 
that pair of shoes or the latest outfit. Maybe they have a starting disadvantage. Their parents might be drug users. Um, maybe they themselves are drug users and they've been outed. And what's unfortunate about all of this um, is sort of the, the tragic part in this tale is that, you know, communities are so focused on only helping those who they see as deserving that they don't really do much to lift those who have fallen through the cracks, um, even though they may be the ones most in need of help. Families, neighbors, um, even face savers themselves, ironically tend to draw, draw these distinctions between the deserving and undeserving poor in a very similar way um, to what we see happening in other societies, right? So the interesting thing about the face game is that while some youth can manage the game to gain incremental mobility, and usually these are the youth who are in a slightly better position to begin with, the game can also amplify existing inequalities and make life harder for those at the very bottom. And, and finally, uh, Manata, I, I wanted to ask about different aspects of your um, fieldwork, um, especially the emotional labor, the emotional stress that is uh, presumably involved within ethnography of poor. Uh, I'm assuming here, please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I'm assuming this because as the reader of the book, at parts of the book, I uh, found myself in tears. I had to take a break from reading it. Uh, so it's a highly emotive topic to read about. And uh, I'm assuming that it is, it must be an emotive topic to write about as well. So uh, I was wondering if you could talk about that a little. And more importantly, what kind of self-care strategies did you have, if any? I mean, how did you cope with all these? Yeah, that's... Um... That's a really great question. It was really interesting. Um, I mostly spent my time hanging out with young people, with their families, right? Getting, taking time to get to know the community. And for me, I guess one thing that I had to come to terms with in my field work and something I still need to, you know, I, I still think about and it still weighs on me was the class dimension. Um, even though I shared the same language and the same sort of cultural background, as the people I was talking to, I was different, right? I, I had spent most of my life in the United States. I was middle-class, I was getting my doctorate, but because of this, because of my um, educational background, many of my interlocutors saw me as this sort of cultured person who they saw sometimes as a conduit for information about universities abroad or ventures abroad. Um, to them, my education was a sign of my work ethic, my diligence, right? My perceived financial standing. Um, and the fact that I wasn't in their social circles, oddly enough, it helped them to open up to me more. They felt they could disclose details about their lives and I wouldn't, you know, go and talk to their friends or family members about it. Um, so my background actually helped me to gain acceptance, but it also really weighed on me as I was doing field work. I was constantly questioning myself, right? Um, would my privilege just sort of deepen the power difference that's already embedded in the researcher interlocutor relationship? Um, and ultimately, I found that, you know, just listening, just being respectful and engaged really does a, go a long way in not only establishing trust, but also in representing their lives in ways that were true to their realities. Um, another thing I found was that because face work 
really structured social life among these communities that I studied, because I was a participant in their lives, I also needed to modify my own behaviors to save face and to be accepted. Um, this meant that I had to wear a headscarf and mantle at all times, even in the privacy of my interlocutors' homes. Um, I had to be hypervigilant, for instance, and not really socializing with unrelated men in public limiting my conversations to them um, during interviews or in family settings. So I had to learn the accepted norms and always keep myself in check. There was a learning curve for me as well. Um, and I guess in regards to self-care, I hadn't really thought of that. I think I did a much worse job of it when I was a grad student um, doing my doctoral work. I, I was constantly on the go um, because it was an ethnography. Every time I stepped out of the house, I was deep in ethnographic mode, right? I was trying to remember all the details, all um, the scenes, um, writing it down or just like committing it to memory so I could rush home and write it down. But, you know, the times when I did go home after a day of field work and decompress just by watching TV or, you know, having a family dinner. I think those were my self-care practices. I think now I'm much more aware that I need to, you know, make sure to take care of myself. And that awareness was something that um, wasn't so obvious to me um, when I was in, in the thick of, uh, of this field work. Um, and I think it's something that comes with, with age and with distance as well. Yeah, true. I agree. <laughs> uh, there's obviously a lot more in the book, and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But uh, before we wrap up the interview, I'd like to ask Manata whether you are working on something right now, or are you thinking about doing your research on a particular topic in the near future? Yeah, um, so there are a couple of projects I'm working on. Um, in the first project, I'm looking at how all these performances of class and status um, have led the elite to respond and how they've actually created urban change. Um, in one of the provincial cities I'm studying, you know, you have rich and poor, rural migrant, longtime city dweller, they're all rubbing shoulders in the city. And, you know, this physical nearness seems to foster equality. But what I found is that it can also breed intolerance. Um, as some marginalized groups like face savers um, gain more and more access to consumer goods and practices that were once the domain of the rich, what I found is that it's resulted in elite backlash. They feel threatened. And so now they're finding new ways to bolster their own exclusivity and really distance themselves from the poor. And one of the ways they're doing this is constructing embedded enclaves in the city, which are these luxury establishments like residential subdivisions, restaurants, coffee shops um, that are embedded in the city itself so that everyone can see them. And ultimately what these enclaves do is deepen the class divide. So I'm really examining how attempts at belonging and recognition can sometimes even result in these tangible physical changes um, in the urban landscape. So that's one, one project. The second project I'm working on is looking at how socially stigmatized laborers in Iran construct dignity. Um, and this builds off coming of age in Iran. But for me, what I found interesting to look at is, you know, what happens when you can't save face because of the nature of your work? What happens when everyone knows that you're poor, when you can't hide it? And I wanted to see especially how this operates in settings where people are working in what are considered demeaning jobs, where they're in close contact with the middle upper classes, jobs like domestic work, um, street sweeping, 
and exclusive residential subdivisions, um, waste picking in upper class neighborhoods. I'm curious as to how people who are faced with um, stigmatization and who may also sometimes even be criminalized because of their jobs, try to challenge that and fit in. And so far, what I'm finding is that laborers attempt to really reclaim their dignity by asserting their role as upstanding citizens. Um, They talk about their innocence or they rely on narratives of heroic sacrifice to elevate themselves. And I'm exploring the broader ramifications of this for social inequality. To what extent can these sorts of emancipatory projects facilitate well-being, right? But also to what extent can they also ironically deepen inequality at the community level? Um, So these are the sorts of questions I'm ultimately trying to address in this new project, but also in my work more generally. It is. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show, Manata, and speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your very, very interesting work with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me, Amir.